Today being the full moon day, one week, uh, one month before the end of Asa, come together to meditate, <coughs> chant, listen to the Patimokha. In Thailand, it's called, this particular day is called Wan Sat Thai, which is it's a day where people come together to make merit for deceased relatives, those they know, those they don't know. Colloquially, sometimes called the day they open the gates of heaven and hell to make merit for the dead. So in some parts of Thailand it's a huge gathering of people. In the West tends to people tend to come on the weekends because they're working on the weekdays if it falls on a weekday. As samanas, it's because we reflect on our practice, practicing for the end of suffering, understand the Four Noble Truths, free our minds from the cause of suffering, greed, hatred, delusion. Developing the path, virtue, concentration, wisdom. Developing the four foundations of mindfulness. Particularly bringing mindfulness to the body. The main source of suffering as human beings. In Thai, they call the body Gong Thuk. It's a heap of dukkha, a heap of suffering. We're learning to practice mindfully, bringing our attention to be aware of that, turning our attention back to the body throughout our meditation, throughout our day. What do we notice? We notice how impermanent it is. And how it is subject to dukkha. Constantly needing attention, needing to be fed and looked after. Bringing different painful feelings, painful experiences. Constantly aging. It's because we spend a lot of time contemplating how to live simply. And when we become mindful of the body, then it supports that. 
dependent on alms, dependent on charity. <clears throat> Our practice is to be aware of how much we're using to keep the body going, and not to fall into indulgence or unnecessary uh, use of the requisites or going overboard with the use of the requisites because all the requisites we use come from the kindness and the sacrifice of the lay community so as we use the robes use our arms food we're contemplating how much does a body need as we wear our robe how how many pieces of cloth, how much clothing do we need, and then the clothing we use. How suitable is it for the practice? How does it support the practice? <coughs> In the practice of sampajanya, clear comprehension or full awareness, we're developing mindfulness, full awareness, and ardent, being ardent, putting effort into the practice, full awareness and the use of the robe. We reflect what the purpose of a robe is for modesty, for protecting uh, this body from the elements. We don't wear for fashion or for just indulgence in comfort or fine things. It serves a purpose to support the practice. The robes are impermanent and when they come into contact with the body they're unattractive as well. They become greasy and dirty. They become worn out so we have to patch them and look after them. And just the use of the robe in itself is a whole practice of mindfulness and full awareness. We don't use our robes carelessly and leave them lying around where they can get damaged. We don't just discard them to pick a new robe, even if there's a lot of robe material or robes available. In the old days at Wobbapong, even though there was plenty of robe material in the store, it's very difficult to ask for it or receive any from the store. You really thought about it before you asked for new cloth. When new cloth came in, the practice Ajahn Chara established was you went into the store and when monks asked for cloth, then they tend to get the old cloth first, use up the old cloth, the old stores. And break that desire where you just see a new piece of, a new item of clothing or material come in and you want it straight away. It goes into the store and you might not see it again for a few years. And you really thought about asking for a new robe or material to cut a robe. When I was a young bhikkhu, to change your chiwara after one year would be seen as something very extravagant. You'd never think of it unless there was a real emergency. 
even two years you thought about it. The more standard was maybe three or four years of looking after the robe, dyeing it, patching it. To change a robe every year would be what used to be thought of as very materialistic, a waste. So you used to think about it. Do I need a new robe? Even if you asked for material, you didn't necessarily get what you want or when you want. And that was the way we were encouraged to practice. Even if there's a lot available in the store, not to be casual about the way we use the requisites, always to bring up mindfulness, full awareness. Think about why we use the requisites, where they come from, why we use them. This is the practice of mindfulness and clear comprehension. And it flows out into the rest of your practice, the requisites you use, the lodgings, the food. When I went to live with Ajahn Kun, there really wasn't anything in the store. In fact, they didn't have a storeroom because there was no, no requisites available. One of the poorest of the poor monasteries. So I didn't even have to think about asking for things. There just wasn't anything sitting there to be used. So you just made sure you looked after what you had. When it came to building, there was no money available to buy building materials, which in one way was good. We didn't have to build very much, could get on with practicing. So I learned at Patimoka there. There was one time when somebody offered a whole truckload of cement, sacks of cement, only once in a whole year. It happened, but there was no sand, no gravel to use with the cement to make concrete. We wanted to pour a slab for a sala, because we only had an old wooden, small wooden eating hall. They wanted to make a proper hall, but no sand, no gravel. So the sand had to come from the bank of the river to go and dig it up with the local villagers. No gravels, we had to go and collect rocks and stone from the forest, bring it back and actually use a sledgehammer to break it down to get the chippings to mix with the concrete. So it made everybody very aware of how much sand we used, how much concrete we used, how much chippings because every chip had to be gained from our own efforts. Every piece of sand was from our own efforts. So you didn't want to waste any. Became very, very familiar with how many buckets of sand, how many buckets of stone went into a mix of concrete. So it taught us to be very, very patient but also just to reflect on using the requisites, how difficult they were to come by, how to use them wisely, mindfully.
the practice <coughs> of meditation, and the Buddha encouraged us to develop this quality of mindfulness, clear comprehension, all the time bringing the mind back to the present moment and reflecting. Sampajanya has four main aspects, clear comprehension of the purpose, the purpose of anything you're involved with, say a requisite, the purpose of a requisite, or an action you're performing, the purpose of that action. And obviously as one practicing the path, our main purpose is for liberation, liberating the mind from defilements greed, hatred and delusion. So keeping the mind focused on that purpose, on that aim, developing the path for the ending of suffering. That's part of clear comprehension. Clear comprehension of suitability. If you are using a robe, how suitable is that robe? Is it suitable for keeping you warm, protected. How to use the robe with a wise attitude. Anything we're involved with, how suitable is that requisite or that activity for the practice, for supporting the practice of reducing unwholesome states of mind rooted in greed anger, delusion, and developing wholesome states of mind rooted in non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion. See, the activities we're involved with, if we're practicing developing clear comprehension, we reflect back how to make them part of the practice and support the practice. suitability of places we go to, things we're involved with. Are they really supportive of the practice or leading to more distraction or actually encouraging the arising of more negative states of mind, more greed, more confusion and so on. Another aspect of clear comprehension is they say clear comprehension of domain or area. The area of the field of your mindfulness and where your mind is going. Because mostly human beings, their mind is going out, out through the senses to the world. Often not very close to the Dhamma. Just finding out about the world, involved in the world and we can get very confused, very stirred up because of it. So clear comprehension of domain, your main domain is the four foundations of mindfulness. And the main area of practice is your own body, bringing your attention back to your own body in the present moment. Your own body, feelings, the mind, the objects of mind. So learning to be aware of how the mind is going out all the time and change that direction, bring it back so it's familiar with its own territory, 
the five khandhas because that's where suffering arises that's where suffering can be ended they give the simile of the young monkeys one who doesn't have clear comprehension of domain see the monkeys up in the Himalayas in the forest a young monkey is inexperienced so it's always going out looking for new experiences new places to find food to have fun so very susceptible to the hunter's trap you have the tar trap you have a little pot with sticky tara inside it which is sweet so it's interesting for the monkey the monkey puts its hand in to get a little bit of the sweet tar but it gets stuck it's like glue because it didn't know it was a trap had no experience so it puts another pour in to try and get the first pour out and gets that pour stuck and its feet its mouth in the inner hole body of the monkey is stuck in in the trap and the, the hunter can come along and do what he wants with the monkey but the older monkeys the experienced ones when they come across such a trap they know it's a trap they know it's not worth the effort even though there's an interest in what's inside the trap the bait they won't go near it they just rush past it and leave it The other simile is the one of the little quail who one day strays out of its normal area where it was born and brought up, goes out of the field into a new area, so it becomes prey to a hawk. The hawk swoops down and grabs it. So the quail starts crying. The hawk asks, why are you crying? It says, oh... Today I really blew it. If I'd just stayed in my own area, I'd have known how to dodge you and escape from you. You wouldn't have been able to get me. And the hawk's pride is stirred up. So he thinks, I can get the quail wherever it is. There's no special place. So he says, oh, well, tell me where your family's area is, where you normally look for food. He said, oh, it's that field over there. It's a freshly ploughed rice field. He said, okay, I'll take you back. Maybe I can catch you another day. So the next day, the little quail is sitting on a piece of upturned earth in the furrow where the plough had been. And the hawk sees it and comes diving down. But because it's in his own territory, the quail is very sharp and knows what to do. This time he just ducks down in the furrow and the hawk smashes onto the upturned earth doesn't get the quail and hurts his chest when we lose our clear comprehension of domain or the proper area then there's danger there's harm we can get caught by Mara's trap caught by danger so part of the practice of clear comprehension is always bringing the mind back to 
its domain, particularly this body, Gaya Gadasati, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the posture, mindfulness of what the body is doing, the activity, mindfulness of the 32 parts, and so on. The last part of clear comprehension is clear comprehension of non-delusion. Maintaining the clarity that sees an Ichidukha Anatta in experience, whatever the activity, whatever the phenomena the mind is involved with, good or bad, internal, external, coarse, refined, to maintain that awareness of non-delusion, see it as not self, empty of self. These candors are empty of self. The things of this world are empty of self, they're impermanent, they're suffering and they're not self, they're not substantial in themselves. If we develop this then the mind is constantly seeing the difference between conventional reality and ultimate reality. <coughs> Samuti Satcha and Paramata Satcha, seeing through the normal way of looking at experience from the sense of self. This is me, my body, my thoughts, this is my my possessions, my friends, my place, my this, my that. Seeing through that. See the emptiness of self, the impermanence, the emptiness in experience. See how everything arises from causes and conditions. Another reflection, you reflect back on this body, where does it come from? It's not doesn't come from some creator or an ultimate maker, creator, some heavenly being. This body comes through causes and conditions. This conception. And then you have Nama, you have Rupa come together, consciousness enters the body at conception. And then through nutrition the body grows. You have birth and then growth and aging. Eventually we have death. The body is a conditioned thing. As long as there's food, drink, oxygen, the body can keep going but it's dependent on those conditions, those causes. If anything starts to get restricted in our experience, then the body is affected quickly. The quality of air we're breathing, or the lack of air, quickly we suffer. If the food is lacking or the drink is lacking, we suffer. Over time, just the aging of the body, it wears out. It's a conditioned thing, so it starts to wear out. We get prone to disease. As our organs start to fail, our eyesight goes, hearing goes. There's no part of the body you can't get cancer, cancer of the skin, cancer of the liver or the 
kidneys, the lungs, the bone marrow or the lymph. We get different diseases over time affecting us. This body is really a very unstable, unsatisfactory thing. A clear comprehension directed towards this body is seeing that, seeing the true nature of body. It's anicca, dukkha, anatta. This is how we're practicing. Whether it's just in the use of the requisites, the posture, the activities we're involved in, or in a formal meditation, learning to pay attention to the in and out breath. We're mindful of the in breath and the out breath, mindful of the breath, mindful of the breath as not self, it's just an element without self. Mindful of the breath, whether it's long, it's short, it's refined, it's coarse. Noticing the full length of the breath as it goes in, there's a pause, then it goes out. There's a pause, then it goes in again. Becoming aware of the body as we practice mindfulness of breathing. As the body settles down, calms down. Both body and mind become more tranquil as we develop mindfulness of the breath. If we put effort into it and we're fully aware, then we can overcome the hindrances. All the thinking, doubting, worrying or sleepiness. Then the mind becomes very, very focused, one-pointed on the breath. We experience the breath body, the whole body seems to be full with the breath. All the mindfulness and clear comprehension we develop in our daily life, in our daily activities, supports the arising of clear comprehension as we practice mindfulness of breathing even though it might seem unrelated, the more you practice, then the more you see it's a good foundation. Developing mindfulness, clear comprehension from moment to moment through your day, when you come to sit meditation or walk meditation, the mind gathers together easily. And we can pay attention to what's going on, to the refinements of the breath, the way the mind and the body is as you're practicing mindfulness of breathing. Constantly letting go of the hindrances, distractions, allowing the mind and body just to quieten down. The mind unifies, becomes more one-pointed. More sense of equanimity arises as the mind lets go of its normal concerns thinking and planning, remembering what it likes and doesn't like, planning different things, just sets all that aside and just becomes very calm in the present moment, gathers together.
the way the Buddha described how the mind gathers together if we become more tranquil and more one-pointed in the meditations. You compared it to like bath soap and water mixing together. In the old days they used to use powder, soap powder for bathing. As the powder absorbs water, becomes completely mixed with the water. Similarly, as the factors of samadhi start to develop, we maintain our awareness on the breath, then vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, ekakata, they all, all these factors come together in the sense of well-being, the joy, the happiness pervades the whole body. Body and mind feel very tranquil, relaxed, energetic, bright. The practice of meditation is very much refining awareness and as refining awareness takes place then the coarser things we're normally caught up in we let go of. So the coarser concerns with the senses and the objects of the senses we let go of. Let go of our concern about different bodily sensations, feelings. Just center the mind's attention on the breath and that sense of well-being, sense of interest and joy starts to pervade from the center of our attention, the breath, where we're focused on the breath starts to pervade the whole body. Just like the water and the soap powder blending together till there's no difference or no space around the particles of powder. So body and mind become very stable. The way the Buddha described the development of samadhi, drop the coarse initial sustained attention on the objects, just the inner sense of pity and sukha developing, sustaining itself. The mind doesn't have to turn attention to the object. Pity and sukha become the object itself. So I compared it to a mountain pond fed by a spring, underground spring, just the water welling up inside the pond. It doesn't have any external entry points from other streams. It's just a pond sustained by its own spring, constantly water bubbling up inside, or the water from rain, but no other streamlets or inlets into that pond. It's like the mind that's let go of vitaka vichara, just has its own internal source of pity and sukha, sustaining itself in a very refined, peaceful state, with joy, with tranquility. Even that sense of joy, the pity, is seen as coarse, so that as one's awareness is refined, the mind drops that, the sense of this bubbling up, welling up of energy and joy is dropped. 
and the mind just becomes immersed in sukha, sense of tranquility, all-pervading happiness with mindfulness and equanimity, but the sense of happiness is most prominent. So they compare that to a lotus flower that's still in the water, underneath the surface of the water. <coughs> Some lotuses don't need to go above the surface of the water. They can just stay in the water, completely surrounded by the water. It's like the mind completely surrounded by sukha, vetana, the tranquility. But dropping that through the refined awareness as the mind goes deeper, then it, all that's left is mindfulness and equanimity, the most deepest state, one-pointedness. Then they compare that to somebody completely covered in white, clean white, pure cloth from head to toe, wrapped in cloth. The brightness, the purity covering over the mind of that one-pointedness, just based in equanimity, not even the mind not even attached to sukha or happiness at that point. The most suitable state for providing a foundation for contemplation of all phenomena, physical, mental phenomena, with equanimity and detachment to see their true nature. The more detachment we develop, the more calm we develop, and the more skill we develop through training in wise reflection, both clear comprehension and then wisdom, reflecting on the nature of experience, the more the mind sees through its former attachments, sees the impermanent nature of experience, sees the lack of self in experience, particularly towards this body. The more calm and equanimity we develop through our meditation and we turn to contemplate the body, go through the 32 parts, the four elements, see them for what they are, and this sense of dispassion and detachment becomes very, very clear because the mind is calm and bright. That sense of detachment and dispassion towards one's own body comes up quite naturally, brings a great kind of, a new kind of joy. Pity and sukha arises out of the insight. Sometimes even becomes quite fascinating or interesting for the mind just to contemplate the body from a place of calm, one-pointedness. Maybe it even becomes, for a period of time, quite happy just to do that by itself. One doesn't even have to push it or work at it very hard, it just wants to do it. And it gets joy and happiness from that experience. You start to see the body as something different. No longer always relating to the body as self. And all the emotions we have based around the body, the passions, the hatreds. Start to see this body as it is. Four elements. 
that are without self, without owner, and they don't last. They come together, these four elements, and then disperse over time. Eventually they go back to the rest of the, the world. As long as the mind is without clear comprehension and without wisdom, then we take this body and grasp at it as a self. So we suffer because of it. We have loves and hates and fears because of this clinging and this lack of clarity. I always remember when I was living in Thailand, we were lucky enough to see autopsies from time to time. You go and see an autopsy and they tend to open up the body, cut right down the middle and then open up the skull and they take all the organs, internal organs, the heart, the liver, the kidneys, the lungs and so on, take them out, take out the brain and sometimes they're investigating to find the cause of death. So they look at them, try and find out or maybe just confirm what they've been told. Somebody's drowned or they had a heart attack, or they're shot by a bullet or something. When they finished all those organs, they just pile them back inside the stomach, sew it up, sew the head, skin around the head back up so that the corpse can be sent off for a funeral. Now if you're watching that with mindfulness, clear comprehension, you're seeing oh, when the body is alive, all those organs have to be in their proper place. And we're very concerned that they're all running properly, functioning properly. Anything goes wrong, we go and see a doctor, always looking after the body. But as soon as it's dead, you can take each organ out and then you can just throw them back in into the stomach like a big sack. You put the brain in there with the stomach and the other organs. Just pile them in and then sew it up. That's not self, that's anatta, that's the emptiness of self when you reflect on it. None of this body lasts, none of it is anything permanent. It's really a great source of suffering for us as human beings because we attach to it, cling to it, become infatuated with it. And the more we can develop some insight, some calm, some insight, and direct it towards this body, we can see mm, this is the way it is. Birth, old age, sickness and death, it's the most normal, natural thing in life. When the mind is clear, mindful, then that gives rise to a great sense of letting go, relief, dispassion, happiness, based on clearly seeing the way things are. Gives rise to brief moments of letting go. One day those brief moments might gather together or coalesce to be some very profound insight really cuts off the roots of attachment, roots of delusion. This is how our teacher, teachers encourage us to practice and develop mindfulness in daily life and develop the mindfulness 
develop clear comprehension and not lose track of our meditation object, not lose track of our practice, the path, our precepts and the purpose of this life and why we're living it and why we're here. If we keep developing the path in this way, developing the sense of calm and then reflecting back on the truth, then the mind will keep going in the right direction. Little by little then the brightness, the clarity will come. If we have the patience and the determination, then that can be, all of us can achieve something through this practice. So I'll leave you with these words of for your contemplation and we can carry on sitting for a while and then we'll do the chanting.